0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides and uh, Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. How was Thanksgiving? Chris? Marissa? Uh, it was okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, oh, really? What's, what's
1: going on? I don't know. It just seems like a yeah. lot of effort for... I, I, I don't know. It just... Everybody got sick at Thanksgiving. Oh, well,
0: okay, that's a bummer. My yeah. three year
1: old niece threw up in the middle of the floor as we were preparing dinner. Um, my brother in law got sick. Okay,
0: so- that, I don't want to hear anymore. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Yeah. Forget <laughs> I asked the question. First, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. did you stay, stay close to home?
2: I was also sick, yes. So. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So, sure yeah, just that. okay, but it was fine. It was- Know, have well, some time off.
0: I, I'm sorry to yours? say, but I had a great Thanksgiving. Oh, good <laughs> <Yeah>. to hear. <laughs> good to hear. <laughs> you know what the trick is? The trick is to find someone who can cook, and my daughter uh, has uh, figured that out. She's now engaged to be married to this uh, this uh, German fellow. Not that that you know German means anything, except that they don't eat turkeys in Germany. But he cooked the best turkey I have ever had. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Great cook. So. Huh. Got very lucky there, Uh, at least in that regard. We'll see how the rest of it goes. (laughs) But only kidding, only kidding. He's he's great. He'll be he'll be great. And we've got a guest, Chris Mayer. Chris, good to see you.
3: Good to see you, Mark. And kind of happy to uh, happy to join. And how about Um, uh,
0: was I? We were talking earlier. I guess your Thanksgiving didn't go that well either. We don't have to go into any detail.
3: Yeah, no, I had the you know my back wasn't uh, wasn't cooperating. But, um, you know, the, oh, it's always good to, always good to get together and see the, see the family that, yeah. that of course, being the most important thing, you know, as long as they're not two year olds having, you know, stomach issues. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: it's, good, it's good to have you. And, and Chris, you're the Paul Milstein, uh, professor of real estate at Columbia business school. Uh, how long have you been at Col- Columbia?
3: Uh, I have been at Columbia. I spent four years, uh, four years down at Wharton. But other than that, in the early 2000s, I've been at Columbia for uh, for over 25 years now.
0: Oh, I, um, I you know, I forgot the Wharton stint. So you're with Susan Wachter yeah. and that group. Joe and Todd. Joe, and, oh, right. you know,
3: Peter, yeah. all the all the, the crew. Yeah. Um, good, good group.
0: And we just um, ran into each other not long ago. I spoke at it. I really enjoyed it. I spoke uh, to they were business school students, weren't they? Yeah, you yeah. MBAs, yeah. MBAs, yeah. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, we, it was over uh, kind of a, a dinner and talked about lots of different things and really enjoyed that. And that, and I just kind of, sort of ran into you in the hallway as I was going. Uh, very ni- very uh, serendipitously ran into you going into the into that uh, classroom. It was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it.
3: Um, no, you did a great job. And actually you made a, you made a great case given the students relative pessimism. And I think you are used to talking to people who are pessimistic. That's that maybe true, the yeah. economy and the labor market is stronger than, uh, than, uh, that they think it is.
0: Yeah, I know. I really enjoyed that. And, um, we've kind of kind of crossed paths at different points in time over the years, uh, lots of different points of contact. Uh, you're also, I didn't know this. You emailed this to me. I didn't know that you're the CEO of L- uh, Long Bridge Financial, reverse mortgage company. I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's um, pretty cool. It is actually. We're now the second largest reverse mortgage lender in the country. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I would, the uh, the thing is, how to, you know, I got into this actually with my work both as a professor and, you know, I started my career at the Fed. Um, actually as a colleague of Chip Cases mm. um, back when he was alive and did some stuff with Chip and mm-hmm. Bob Schiller. But my work at the Fed pretty quickly became clear that, you know, Americans have enormous amounts of housing wealth heading into retirement and have not saved enough. And so if you can find a way to help people responsibly use home equity to help in retirement, it's, you know, it presents real opportunity. And I will sort of say that as over time, more and more Americans are bringing debt into retirement, which is tough to have to make mortgage payments into your 70s and 80s. And so we really have to think about how housing can, you know, help people manage their retirement, because there are a lot of elderly people who have challenges. So that's how I kind of got into the got into the business. And, you know, for me, the mix of trying to work in the business side to solve important problems, but also to keep the sort of the academic perspective on the world. The the mix of those things is important. Obviously that's something you do a lot, Mark, of is trying to play between those, you know, between the academic and business audiences. And I think there's a lot of value to that. That's so cool. Personally Uh,
0: and I guess the reverse mortgage industry has been under a lot of pressure, right? At reverse mortgage funding, is that it's RMF? They yeah. went belly up a little. I think almost a year ago now, didn't they? And yeah, yeah. Was, so, are you able to navigate? I guess they had kind of some unique circumstances the the, the their portfolio and so forth and so on. So, but you've yeah. been able to navigate through all that pretty well.
3: Yeah. No. Look, our our company we're owned by uh, a NYA, a New York Stock Exchange company, Ellington Mm -hmm. Financial. So we Mm -hmm. have the capital backing
2: Mm -hmm. um,
3: that puts us in really strong position. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we took over the servicing of a couple billion dollars of their private securitizations and were able to step in and help some of the borrowers and bring some of their team over. So it was certainly unfortunate for the industry. Um, You know, our company has been able to both navigate and, you know, use that as an opportunity to help, Kind of grow the scale of what we're doing a little bit. Mm -hmm.
0: So, I've always been perplexed why. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know this industry well. It's never really taken off, right? I mean, if you look at the amount outstanding, I don't know what is it—several hundred billion, something like that. Uh, Why? Why is that? Why hasn't it? It feels like that. Like as you when you introduced what you were doing, it sounds very compelling. Like it should take off. Why? Why not?
3: So I'll do a contrast between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh-huh. In the UK, more than one out of three mortgages for borrowers who are 55 and older is an equity release loan, which mm-hmm. is a non which is a, essentially a reverse mortgage. In the US, it's about two percent. Um, the difference is in the UK, three of the five largest life insurance companies all are in this business originating the product. Mm-hmm. Um, Legal in general is the largest player in the space um aviva some of the very large brand name insurance companies are in the space in the u.s um metlife at one time was in it in fact one of my business partners was at metlife bank and brought them into the space but metlife bank left in 2012 if you kind of remember when the fed introduced the stress tests and Mm -hmm. prudential and metlife were g Mm -hmm. and they failed metlife and prudential um, MetLife shut down their bank and thus was forced out of the reverse business. Prudential mm. actually sued the government, and in fact, won mm. that you know it's uh, it's case that it was not actually failing the stress test. But in the meantime, MetLife left B of A and Wells, which were both in the business, also left for different reasons related to how the FHA at the time ran the program. Um, I think we're going to see this come back. Mutual of Omaha is actually. You know, we do have one insurance company, and I think you're going to see next year our company work with another, you know, brand name company who's going to come, you know, who is going to, you know, and, you know, may well come back into the space. And I think as you start to get that broader acceptance and people feel a little more comfortable with the product and not just as a stereotypical you know, late night TV ad kind of product. Mm -hmm. And by the way, nobody complains when Nike runs TV ads. But um, Mm -hmm. if you're a financial services firm, not only in reverse in any business, if you're a financial services firm and you run ads, people are very skeptical of Mm -hmm. what you've got. Um, But, you know, I think that that acceptance is really, you know, the concern about the companies and the product, um, really from a sense of not knowing what it is, is really the principal challenge that the industry faces. And for me as a, you know, kind of an Ivy league professor running a reverse mortgage company as well. is sort of, you know, the hope is that that provides a little bit of credibility. Um, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Academics aren't necessarily, mm-hmm.
2: right, you know, right, they right.
3: go up and down in the public standing <laughs> academic economists. I don't know whether that could be viewed as a good or a bad thing, but certainly, you know, the, you know, the the work that we're doing and our team is doing, I think, is, you know, we're really making some progress on the acceptance. And in fact, there are a lot of insurance companies now that invest in proprietary reverse products, but they just do it quietly behind the scenes. Uh. I I think over time, we're going to see that acceptance come back. And, you know, so some of it is going to be on the reputation side. But honestly, you know, I'll just give you one example Harvard did a study a couple years ago and looked at people 55 and older and looked at the month they made their last mortgage payment. And the month after people spent increased their spending on pharmaceuticals by 25%. So unless in the month, you you know, the month after you make your last mortgage payment, you got really sick. Mm. It's just sort of a sign that many elderly Americans are living a lifestyle and living in a way that really is below the standard that they should be living in retirement as americans and having worked their lives you know to get to where they are and so i think people really are in a place where they can and should be looking at home equity and then the flip side since 40 percent of people harvard just literally released the study yesterday since you know 40 percent of people over 65 have a mortgage they're mm-hmm. actually making mortgage payments mm-hmm. just imagine going on social security trying to work part-time and to continue to make your mortgage payments for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. It's not a great, that's not a great retirement. And so there really is a sense that we just have to figure out how to help people understand and be comfortable with the product and recognizing that all it is is just a mortgage. It's not nobody owns your home, nobody wants your home. This mm-hmm. is just a mortgage where instead of making the payments, the payments accrue. Cool. But you can use the cash to live off of, and that allows you to do things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, maybe even including taking care of your own health or, you know, fixing up your home, et cetera. So anyway, it's a very cool. yeah, I think it's a valuable, you, you sound like a, a man on product in industry.
0: Sound like a man on a mission, and it's very impressive. You're, you're a, prof- a full-time professor at Columbia Business School and a CEO yeah. <laughs> at the same time. That is that's pretty cool.
3: So um, I am I am kind of a part-time. I, I am I still teach at Columbia, but I sort of you know I'm part-time. But you know, we'll talk about housing and stuff, and you'll see. I still you know oh you're there, really you're engaged there. in the world. I just want to um, say,
0: I think if they switched you out for Tom Selleck. You do the industry would do much better. I'm just, just saying, I'm just saying,
3: <laughs> I appreciate, I let me say, I appreciate it very much. Um, that's all. I'll, that's all I'll say, but okay. there's a reason that TV ads do not include professors. Or no, PhD I, economists in them. Yeah, um, right. Right. Well, there I think was one great- point briefly where Prudential was running ads with Dan Gilbert. Oh, is it?
0: Um, oh, oh! I remember that. Yeah, the CEO of uh, of of uh, Rocket, right?
3: Or, no, was so this is a, this is a different. there's a Dan Gilbert. Um, there's a professor, actually a oh. PhD in psychology who does behavior. Oh, I see.
0: I see. Oh,
2: who I is see.
3: running? Who is running these kind of retirement ads? And let me just sort of say that campaign lasted a very short period of time. So <laughs> the idea of having professors or PhD people as ad pitchmen on TV. I think you just got to go find, you know, football or basketball players or women's soccer players or, yeah, you know, actresses in. or actors like they're they're the right people for TV ads, not uh, not any of us uh, academics.
0: No, don't say never. Uh, but we'll come back to housing. There's so much to talk about there. I do. I want to turn back to uh, very quickly to uh, Chris Dorides. And and I'm going to say sorry, Chris Dorides, just to make sure that we don't get confused. I'll do. The Chris's. Yeah. The, the Chris's. And, Mar- and Mar- I can call you Dr. Dorides. Should I do that? No, we, we can keep it informal here. Okay. Keep it informal. Mm-hmm. I'll just call you it's That comes, rolls off the tongue very easily. So okay. Just, all right. And Marissa, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the week in the economy. And because uh, there's a lot of data points that came out and a lot of stuff happening. So maybe I'll just turn to you first, Marissa, uh, of all the things that, come out this past week or uh, events that have occurred, wh- what would you single out as most significant? Uh, anything in particular? And, I, and yeah. I don't mean to, I hope I'm not stealing from the statistics game, which we'll play a little bit later, but uh, ho- yeah, hopefully I'm doing it. That
1: may be collateral damage here, but Okay,
0: all right, whatever. go ahead, fire away. Um,
1: uh, yeah, the, you're right. There was kind of a lot that came out, so it's it's a little hard to pick. But I mean, I guess the, the most obvious thing for me to pick would be that, we got another read on inflation hmm. for October from um, the personal consumption expenditures and personal income report. And it showed no change in inflation over the month in October. So 0% on the PCE. Um that, you know, sent bond yields down again, a little bit of a stock market rally. Uh, mortgage rates have fallen in line with, with bond yields coming down. So, um, yeah, and and at the same time, in the same report, we got data on spending that showed spending is holding up among consumers. So I would say those two things are the most uh, important data points of the week, arguably. I don't know, Chris may have, th- but there's a lot to choose from.
0: Yeah, before I do that, I want to bring Chris back in uh because this is a stylized fact if you look at consumer price inflation CPI inflation excluding shelter this shelter component the the housing component or the core consumer uh, consumer price inflation you know the the uh, CPI less food and energy and then take out shelter and you look at the year over year growth as of October which is the last data point both are well within the Fed's target they're actually I think below the Fed's target uh, on CPI inflation. So the, the 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 message is that the the thing that's keeping inflation from the Fed's target is the growth in the cost of housing services, and uh, you know, it feels like to me that given the way that is constructed, it's based on market rents, and we know that market rents are flat to down, you know, nationwide over the past year, and that that will continue. That that strongly argues that inflation is going to come back into target here, kind of in an orderly way. Not not next month, maybe not next quarter, but certainly over the next year. With that as a preface, Chris, does that sound right to you? Does that make sense to you, Chris Mayer?
3: Yeah, it, it does. does. Okay. Um, and actually, the way they calculate, you know, as as you know, and you know, your listeners may kind of you know understand is they calculate they calculate both rents and owner equivalent rent based entirely on the rental market. So when home prices spike up or down, that doesn't drive up or down measured inflation. Um, And if you look at the rental market, the way they do it is they look at new leases signed relative to the prior year, which embeds in it a lag because new leases today may be being signed where there's no growth in the rents or virtually no growth, which is as you said, Mark, what we're seeing in the data. Mm-hmm. But if you look back relative to a year ago, rents may be higher than they were 12 months ago. And so by the way they by the way it's calculated to go into the CPI, you do have this lag, which explains what you were referencing, which is CPI measured inflation measured shelter is still showing some increases, but the rent data we're seeing are really not showing rent Mm -hmm. increases much at all. And that means that that's going to continue coming down over time with a lag. And so they're actually looking at data that is a little bit old. I mean, there are a number of, you know, there are a bunch of data errors and in how inflation is measured, mm-hmm. but there is going to be negative momentum of mm-hmm. inflation continuing to fall into the future that is already locked in based on where the market is today, mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. rental market is today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that, that gives me a lot of confidence. Inflation is coming in. Chris uh, anything you want to add there? And then also I'm curious what uh, uh, data point or statistic or event you'd like to highlight for the past week?
2: Yeah, yeah, nothing else on the inflation
0: front. Okay. PCE so, you, was, so you're uh, on board with the, the, <clears throat> that yeah. forecast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. uh, in terms of, I mean, I think uh, Marissa covered kind of all the uh, the highlights in terms of PCE, income, spending, they're all... And mm-hmm. I might highlight we did get another read on GDP mm-hmm. uh, for Q3. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was revised up, so 5.2%. Amazing. That's a, amazing. Mm-hmm. 8.9% nominal, which is, you know... Boggles the mind too, but (laughs) um, again, shows a a lot more strength. I I might point out that we had a read for the uh, GDI, gross domestic income, as well, that we've talked about on the podcast before. That was one and a half percent, right? So a little bit of a conflict Mm -hmm. between the two, but even if you average them, what's Mm -hmm. that, three, three and a half percent? So that's Mm -hmm. still an incredibly strong economy in in the third quarter. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Chris. Mayor, when we when I saw you in Columbia, and I gave my kind of happy talk, uh, and I, you know, I did my one-handed, two-handed economist thing, and focused on <laughs> some servers, But at the end of the day, it was a pretty upbeat kind of uh, view on the economy. You, you, I think you came up to me at the end, and you said that you were more worried, more pessimistic. Are you still more worried, pessimistic about these? The, where the economy is headed? Or are you feeling, did I cheer you up? Are you starting to feel any better given all the data <laughs> that has transpired since now, then and now?
3: I think you cheered me up a little bit, but I would still have, you know, I think we probably agreed at the end of the day on sort of where we saw the risk factors. The question was the weight on them. Um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll go and talk a little bit about it, but I'm kind of worried about, um, both commercial real estate Mm -hmm. and the banking sector, um, and lending sectors, you know, I'm probably a little more worried than the average person and the average policymaker is about them. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of what we're going to see, um, coming. And so that's probably where I see a little bit more risk. Is on the asset price side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the stock market, for all of the strength in the economy, is still not really that far above where it was two years ago. We've seen some ups and, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen some ups and downs, and now it's picked up a little bit over the last you know month or six weeks. So I do think, in general, the strength of the economy is going to pull us through all of it. And I don't think what could happen in the financial sector, given how good the economy is right now, I think it's harder and harder for challenges in the lending and financial sector to derail the overall economy. So relative to what we talked, um, you know, six weeks ago, four weeks ago, I, I do feel increasingly better that even the risks are likely to, you know, to not derail the overall momentum of where things are. But I think there's going to be, you know, some stories kind of, it may not be the number one story that could, you know, create challenges. And I also worry about just geopolitical stuff, but, you know, I'm an economist. So what do I know about that? But, you know, the geopolitical stuff still gives me, you know, still gives me real pause.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, we're going to c- come, uh, come right back. But I, I just want to throw out the thing that I found most important in the last week was the continued uh, low oil prices and lower long-term uh, bond yield so oil is now firmly on WTI West Texas intermediate firmly below 80 it doesn't feel like anything's going to push that up in a, to a significant degree because you know lots of stuff out there hasn't done it Israel Hamas Saudi cuts Russian sanctions Chinese demand you know we're getting supply from more supply from American producers and, and that's keeping prices down now i say this with inflation, I'm very confident in the forecast. Forecasting oil prices, I am not, but but it feels pretty good. And then on bond yields, boy, that feels pretty good too. I think I was, I think I saw 4.25 percent on the ten-year yield. I think we're higher than that today, but I think I saw that yesterday or the day before, and that feels pretty good to me as well. So another week of pretty good news, right, Chris Dorides? Yep. Chris Keep is the, coming. Keep Chris coming. is the the uh, the local bear, the relative bear. So I'm just just making sure. That,
2: it's in the name, I think. Or, it's in the well, name. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. I'm both yeah. a little
2: bit worried here. So.
0: Okay. All right. We're going to, let's, let's turn to, to to housing and real estate more broadly, commercial real estate, which you mentioned. And um, you uh, mentioned uh, before we got going here, this kind of seeming, seeming disconnect that is developing between single family house prices, which... Believe it or not, they're rising again. Our Moody's Analytics repeat sales index, you know, go, going back to uh, Case and Chiller and their index, we construct something similar based on repeat sales. I think it's up five percent year over year through the month of October. It's like crazy, yep. Yep. and we're like in the middle of the pack of all the price indices out there. And then on CRE, commercial real estate prices are weakening, particularly multifamily. And our we also construct Chris uh, Mayor, um repeat sales index for multifamily. Properties and I think th- I think our last data point is Q two. Is it? I think it's Q two, Chris. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It it was down eighteen point five percent from the peak, which was I think last fall, some like Q three last year, Q four last year. So, how do you what do you how do you think about that, uh, Chris? Uh, you know what's going on there? What, that seeming disconnect between those two things.
3: Yeah, I will sort of say the the point you're making, Mark, is is right which is we probably have not in the data seen a bigger disconnect between housing and multifamily markets since you know i've been tracking the data hmm. and it shows up in different ways the economist headline you know the economist had a, an article this month mapping the country and basically the country used to be you know all one color which is you know 2019 running you know you know, buying made a lot of sense and the whole country turned red and basically buying is a disaster. New York Times, everybody is sort of yeah. writing articles that are right. saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, and you see it in the data. We were talking about rent data flattening out. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, it's very hard to think about a model where apartments and houses trade so differently. Hmm. But. There's been academic research suggesting that there's much less crossover than you might think. Hmm. And so when I talk to people who are, you know, when you you have a family who's, you know, living in a condo in the city and they've got, you know, one kid and a second on the way and you sort of ask them, you know, well, we've decided, you know, it's so much cheaper to get into an apartment. Should you just go into an apartment or are you going to have the second kid and not move into a home? I think that family's basically going to say, you know what, hmm. I'm, I'm still going. I'm still going into the home, and I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm just going to do it. Hmm. So, some of it is clearly just the lack of supply of houses on the market. Um, you know, sixty percent of mortgages outstanding are below four percent, and a quarter of them are below three percent. So, everybody who's sitting in a home with a mortgage that's at a you know with a two handle or a three handle in front of it to go to a mortgage with a seven handle even with the 10-year going to you know four and a quarter mortgage spreads that is the difference between the um 10-year treasury and the 30-year mortgage rate and you know Mm -hmm. Even though they're different, essentially the comparison is kind of the right comparison because most people don't hold their loan for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, That spread is close to record levels, almost a 3% gap. And historically, that gap is about half of that. Um, So mortgages are incredibly expensive. Houses have not come down. Rents are still at very, you know, relatively high levels. But, you know, rents went up, call it 30% post COVID, plus or minus a little bit. House prices have gone up 40 plus percent. Despite interest rates, the housing market has stayed high. And it really is that there are people who are entering the home buying age where there are really no homes for sale. And they have a very, very strong demand to live in a single family home. And Mm -hmm. so if you look at the vacancy rate for single family homes, Going back to the 1960s, it's never been as low as it is today, down to about half a percent of all, you know, owner what they sort of call owner-occupied type homes, mostly single-family, um, are vacant. In the apartment side, that's not the case. There are, you know, we're probably slightly below average on the vacancy side in apartments, but whereas for single-family homes, Between 2008 and 2020, we built a couple, about two to 300,000 a year for a period of almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. And demand was much higher than that. And so the vacancy rate went from nearly an all time high in 2008 to an all time low because we just stopped building single family houses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Part of not building them has been. Um, construction costs rising, one of the Mm -hmm. undiscussed, um, you know, the implications of the immigration policy that we've had for the last 15 years has been that people who build single family homes, which has predominantly been an immigrant population, um, home builders since 2012 have been talking about a hard time finding people to build and as economists, I, you know, we're all presumably skeptical. It's like, well, if you raise wages, then of course they will, you know, you will get people to build. But what's happened is they have to raise wages a lot and people don't really like those jobs that much. Mm -hmm. Sitting outside, working in the cold, working in the rain, it's not a super fun job. And it turns out even raising wages a lot hasn't gotten a lot of people to do it. And there's been no productivity, you know, construction in general. Has seen really no productivity changes. Maybe we'll build 3D houses, you know, and at some point that'll change, but you still build houses more or less the same way you did before. It's pretty labor intensive. And materials costs have gone up a lot. And so the combination of those things has meant that the supply of housing hasn't grown a lot. And if you look post COVID, construction costs. The PPI for construction is up substantially, and so even though home prices have grown more than forty percent, the cost of construction, the PPI for um, for residential, uh, I forget what they call it, the you know the residential yep. materials, is up thirty eight percent. And so, if you look on an after construction cost basis, post COVID, home prices are up about 1.1% annualized since March of 2020. And if you look from 1987 to 2020, home prices in the US were up 1.1%, sorry, 1.2% above construction costs Hmm. for that 33-year period. So in other words, if you index home prices by construction costs, not by the CPI, Mm -hmm. home prices have grown post-COVID, at virtually exactly the same rate as they grew in the 33 years before COVID 33 is just looking at the case Schiller index and you should send me the index and I'll start using, uh, uh, oh, I'll start using yeah. the, the Moody's, yeah. uh, your, it's the very Moody's timely. index for my calculations as yeah. well. I promise. Um, we'll do, but you know, but one answer for housing or two answers is we haven't built a lot of it. The cost of building it has grown. And there's not a lot of substitutability between owner-occupied housing and apartments. And those facts together make a case for housing prices where they are. Now, there's a bear case to be made. and And in case Chris doesn't push me on it, we should go to the bear case. But I'll at least start with the bull case. And by the way, none of those facts apply for multifamily.
0: Oh, oh so, Although on the construction costs, aren't they up as well for multifamily to, I mean, builders have had a hard time getting materials and labor costs are up as well. No, or.
3: So construction costs do not construction wages do not show the same increases. Is that right? Okay. As um, construction costs, believe it or not. So mm-hmm. if you look at wage increases, Wage increases in the construction industry have not been higher than wage increases in other industries. Finding people to do them, it's sort of interesting because the costs are high. Essentially, we just haven't built as much, which meant there haven't been as many people in the market, which hasn't then raised wages to the point where you start to see more going on. But a lot of the construction, a lot of the reason materials costs are higher is because while we saw some increase in single-family construction, we saw historic increases in multifamily construction. And so multifamily construction rates were at the highest levels we saw in 20 or 30 years. And so we saw in the early 2020s, and actually even before COVID, 2017, 18, 19, because rents had been growing as homeownership rates were falling. So credit you know, I think you you've written with Lori, you know, it um, in the Urban, Urban Institute yeah. um, about mortgages continuing, you know, credit continuing to be tight in the housing market relative to historical levels. It's kind of been hard for even, you know, people who historically would be good home buyers to get a to get a loan. Home ownership rates were declining and had been declining for, you know, you know, consistently. And we went from 69% down to 64%. So there were many more renters and that pushed up demand for multifamily and rents that was happening throughout the, um, 2010s, even before COVID. And so we have seen increasing amounts of multifamily construction Mm -hmm. and that construction has really started to impact rents on apartments. And it's been particularly true in, mar- in some of the hottest markets in the country, Austin, Nashville, Atlanta, you know, these Southern markets where we just saw red spiking and we saw lots of stuff. Rents are now down 10 or 15%. You know, I have a picture from, I have a cousin in Austin who got married. I've been to Austin several times, you know, a little bit of a geek that I am. Whenever I see pictures of cranes, I like turn around and I'm snapping, you know, selfies of myself right. with cranes in the background yeah. because, uh-huh. you know, I'm a you economist. saying you are a little weird. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> you know, this is again why you would
3: never put me on TV, right? You know, it's not the, you know, I'm the wrong person for TV ads, but you know, I'm snapping selfies with these cranes in the background yeah. because of all the apartments that are getting built. And so in many parts of the country, particularly, in the South where there aren't the kind of building constraints that we have elsewhere. We've seen multifamily construction. That construction has been at levels that we hadn't seen in decades. It's going to be happening for another year, two, three years. The stuff that people started is still getting completed and that's pushing down pressure on rent. That's pushing down rents, gets back to our CPI conversation. Mm -hmm. Rents aren't going to fall. They're not going to collapse. But we've just built a lot of stuff in apartments. Mm -hmm. So some Mm -hmm. part of the decline in apartments has been driven by construction that we haven't seen in -hmm. single family and a segmented market where there are really people who want Mm -hmm. to live in homes that, you know, who want to live in single family homes and neighbor, you know, in places where they send their kids to good schools and rents on single family homes have been stronger than rents on apartments. And so some of what we're seeing is driven by what I'll call supply and demand fundamentals. Mm. But where we should come back to after this is what I'll sort of call the investment market. So you have kind of two markets going on for housing. Mm -hmm. One of them is the short-term market, which drives Mm -hmm. rents Mm -hmm. and prices, which is the supply and demand for units. But there's a second market, which is the valuation market which is given what rents and prices are today, what do you think they're going to be in the future? And what is the present value of that stuff in the future? And that's what drives prices hmm. and in particular for apartments.
0: So, so that's, that's interesting. I, I, I thought, or I had this stylized kind of view that these, the rental market and the home for home ownership market were more substitutable, but you're making the point, but maybe not so much. And so they, they can, they're on their own supply demand dynamics investment dynamics and therefore can end up in a different place um yeah. interesting well let me though look let's looking forward you know we've had this correction in multifamily property prices down almost 20% and by the way they're down 20 but they're still up by our index 25 from where they were before the pandemic so there's still you know, they're still well above where they were just a few years ago. So it's just kind of a retracing of some of the surge in pricing that we saw during the pandemic. Cap rates have gone from being extraordinarily low to just low, you know, you know, they right. they've moved up. What about the single, fa- I, what I can't get my mind around is how does the, what happens in a single family housing market? I mean, even if mortgage rates come back down to something closer to six, let's say, which in my view is kind of equilibrium you know where you might land in the long run so it's you know maybe we come down a point a point and a quarter a point and a half something like that even if that happens even if you assume we avoid recession and people's incomes continue to move higher if house prices stay where they are you know very elevated and rising what I mean it feels like we're, we're never going to get going here that right. home sales are going to be on the floor for a long time no yes. Okay. I, th- I think house prices I think best... decline. One of the two. Yeah.
3: So, you know, the stylized fact prior to 2008 that everybody, bat, you know, that some large institutional investors who are not in the big, who are on the opposite side of the big short, um, bat on was we never see nationwide, you know, sharp declines in home prices. Mm-hmm. And 2008 proved that that is absolutely not the case. Mm-hmm. But- that was in a market where we had large amounts of distress, 4 million foreclosures and forced sales. I think in the housing market, and I, you know, my most cited academic paper of everything is written, I've written is a paper on loss aversion, which makes a fairly straightforward point, which is people just don't sell stuff at nominal losses. Mm-hmm. And it's not only houses, it's stocks, professional traders, mm-hmm. all sorts of people. People don't like to sell things at nominal losses. Hmm. We could debate whether that's rational or not as long as we want. It just turns out to be factually true of markets reality. and of homeowners and of stock buyers and of professional commodities traders and everybody else that anyone's ever studied.
0: That certainly um, applies to me. So- I can I can t- I can testimony. To that. <laughs> I can't hold on to stuff forever. Yeah, even. If, yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I just it- don't want to admit i was wrong you know so
3: (laughs) people just don't want to admit they're wrong yeah it just it just is a fact of human right it's a fact of human behavior chris is
0: definitely like that he'll never admit he's wrong he kind of smiles never never admits that he's wrong I'm
3: uh,
2: just just waiting for the clock to. Uh... <laughs> I'm, uh,
3: sorry, I'm no to admit that I make mistakes. Um, except by the way, I have three daughters. Except when I'm talking to them, and that, that's a lot But Other good than strategy. That, uh, good strategy.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, with my wife, it's you know, I I can never hold that position. I'm out immediately. But with my daughters, I still try and hold up that. Uh, I tr- I still try and hold up that view. Um, you know, it doesn't really. They don't really believe that, of course. But you know, yeah. They, uh, I'll try. Um so what happened for example in you know the late the late 80s through the late 90s when home prices kind of the previous peak before 08 and you kind of you know you, you remember those you know those times mark where mm-hmm. you know the largest you know, bank in New England, Bank of New England failed in the late 1980s. We had rolling recessions, you know, wasn't correlated, with rolling recessions in different parts of the country. If you looked, nominal home prices were flat for 10 years after that period. Hmm. Um, and that was a period where we went into a recession. Mm -hmm. So this—that's not analogous to this, right? Because we just started with the economy strong, and GDP Mm -hmm. just got revised up, and the labor market is strong, and you know we haven't even mentioned AI yet, and Mm -hmm. you know the product, you know productivity gains. Darn, I
0: thought we'd get through this without mentioning
3: AI somehow. Somehow Um, you blew it. I'll I'll go. I'll only do (laughs) it. That doesn't. This has to be the last time. That could be the last time. It's okay. Um, But you know the, in the face of a strong economy. We don't have to live in a world where nominal home prices collapse. Mm -hmm. I think the disproportionate evidence we have over the last 40 years in U.S. housing markets on the academic side is that when you see nominal price declines, it is associated with distressed selling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think I would argue more broadly that you could look at commercial real estate. You can look at other asset markets for some of the same reasons related to the view on losses, but for some others as well, um, where you see sharp asset declines, you have somebody who's distressed, who is forced to sell an asset into a market where there's not a lot of demand. Hmm. And that is, you know, and and by the way, you see run-ups, you know, more and more research on bubbles and work that I've seen and done over time suggests that over-exuberance on one hand and distress on the other. And the over-exuberance is by people who are non-experts. So it's when the people from somewhere else come into the market and start buying it up like crazy, whether it's biotech stocks, whether it's, you know, AI, you know, whether it's chip manufacturers of AI companies, when somebody who never buys chip manufacturers say, Oh, AI is going to take over the world. I'm going to go buy that stock. That's what causes prices to get disconnected on the upside. And then the downside it's distress selling. So That's it is perfectly cool. reasonable unfortunately, that we could be in a market like this for a long time, where you have a lot of people who are the opposite of distressed. They're living on 3 or 4% mortgages. They can continue to sit in those homes for a long period of time. They'll renovate them and do anything they can to avoid selling. And you have a demand of people coming in. I think we're going to continue to see elevated levels of single-family construction. But given interest rates, the demand for all that stuff is going to be somewhat limited because most of the demand for houses is still by people who are selling a home. So most transactions are trade up buyers or trade down buyers, but mostly trade up buyers who are selling an existing home and buying a new home. So that transaction, both sides of it are gone are mostly gone and are going to be gone for a while. And so it's going to be five, seven years before people pay down, those mortgages to the point where they may think about pulling equity out to you know to to fund growth or to do other things and i think a very reasonable forecast for housing is that the people who are buying today are not getting a great expected return that is if you take the present discounted value of the rents they're giving up relative to the price they're paying it's not a great deal but it doesn't mean the prices fall Nominal prices may even rise a little bit if construction costs are higher. Um, So you get some nominal price growth. You probably don't get the real price growth that we've seen historically. Real home prices have grown, you know, again, you know, a little bit north of 1%, you know, 1.4, you know, 1.2, 1.3% a year going back to 87. So maybe we don't get a lot of real price growth, maybe only a little bit. And we look back 10 years later and say prices are a bit higher than they were. The people who bought really needed to buy. They probably could have got a better investment return. But the problem is they needed a place to live for 10 years. So only on paper was that a bad deal because they actually got a place to live they wanted to live in. And so that's a perfectly feasible Hmm. scenario. That scenario relies on two things. It relies on inflation remaining in control in the economy you know, and rates kind of staying where they are in the economy growing. Um, I can give two possible bullish cases where things could be a little better than that. And they both rely on mortgages. So your kind of equilibrium mortgage rate in the sixes mm-hmm. suggests that spreads on mortgages I'd come down. I'd say five and a half
0: to six. Yeah, that spreads. Five and a half six. to six. Yeah.
3: So that, that's where I was going to go with the, yeah. the five. one, which which is It could, be lower it, it could is, be lower. it could be lower if spreads come back to the one and yeah. a half. Versus right. three. Right. But I will say that bond buyers have been burned by what we will right. technically call negative convexity. Yeah. And negative convexity, which makes bond buyers hate owning mortgages, is what all of us homeowners love. Yep. Which is the ability to refinance a loan when rates fall. Right. And the problem is when rates are sitting at historically high levels. Yeah. They don't want to. Buy, you know, you need a premium to own a mortgage bond because you realize if rates come down into the upper fives, all those mortgages at seven are going to refinance. And so I'm not willing to lend at lower levels because I'm afraid that there's going to be a refi wave of those people. And so, in a world where interest rates are high and spreads are high, that is likely to keep spreads high in mortgages if you think there's down there's some scenario where rates come down that's one thing and the second is where do we think real rates should be and this is a subject on which um you know if you go back and look back to the beginning of the tips market so you know measuring treasury, real rates for this, this, this the
0: audience the treasury inflation protected securities market the tips market
3: that's right yeah so, so I can buy a bond which gives me 10 years of real returns. Mm-hmm. So the federal government is going to pay me um, is going to pay me um, based on inflation. And so what I can go and figure out on the market is if I can get buy a bond that pays me an inflation indexed return, and I can compare the yield on that to a nominal treasury bond, I can impute out what expected inflation is going to be. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the 10-year treasury, which is around four and a half, expected inflation is about 2.2. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit less, actually. I think now it's closer to two. And the real rate, which is the non-inflation portion of returns, is about two and a half percent.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: By comparison, in January of 2022, it was minus one I point to January, 2022, because if you go back in the record and look, you will see a number of Fed officials say, whoa, what are we doing buying all these bonds? We're not only going to stop buying them, we're going to start redeeming. Mm -hmm. And when when those comments came out, there was an immediate, incredibly sharp increase in real rates. And the last time we saw that, was back in 2013, when there was something called the taper tantrum. And the taper tantrum in May had exactly the same effect. At that time, the Fed said, we're going to start pulling back on the bond portfolio. And real rates went from minus 0.5% to over 0.5% within weeks. And so the Fed's portfolio, if you go back before QE existed, and you go back and look in the mid 2000s, the beginning of the tips market, real rates were pretty close to 23 to 2.5%. Today, real rates are about 2.5%. So the question is, when the Fed and the Fed has trillions of dollars of stock to still offload, but they've said they're going to stop buying, they're going to let it run off um, over time, and I believe them because of all their concern about inflation and everything else. So as the Fed offloads that, they don't actually have to do it. Financial markets look at what's going to happen in the future, they don't price what's happening today. So they price the Fed's willingness to let their bond portfolio run down by trillions of dollars. There's a case to be made that real rates really should be in the twos, absent these multi-trillion dollar interventions And if we think the productivity growth in the future is likely to be higher because of technology, I won't use the A word, um, the two letter A word. um, You know, if you think that productivity growth is going to be moderately higher, um, if we think that we're not going to see a lot of immigration and wages are going to go up, maybe real rates should be back at that level. And if so, That means that when you discount future rents to prices today, if you own a long-lived asset like real estate, those discount rates should be higher and have to be higher because you've invested in real estate, you have to earn a return relative to inflation that's the same return that you invest in stocks of technology companies or stocks of regular companies that are benefiting from productivity gains.
0: So, so, okay. So, to connect that back to where we started on prices, what are you saying? What are you, are you now you're talking about multifamily we're trying to that,
3: So, multifamily and single family.
0: Yeah. So, well, on the single family, my interpretation of what you said on the single family side is, of course, things can go in lots of different directions, but most likely we're just going to go flatline uh, here for a, a long time and let incomes and uh, we get incomes catch up, it, uh, uh, interest rates come in maybe a little bit and ultimately over time we're going to see more transactions the market uh, normalizes but hey that's not going to happen next year that could be 5 7 years down the road you you mentioned new england exactly uh, circa right. the 1990s as your your case study which you know that's right makes a lot of sense by the way that has tremendous all kinds of implications you know gazillion implications most obvious being Home ownership is gonna be a problem. <laughs> it's it's not it's gonna you know it's gonna be very difficult to get first-time home buyers into homes. And that means home ownership is not going higher, maybe maybe even start to go lower. But anyway. Then you went on about real interest rates. Is that now you're tying that back into the multi? Now I'm, I'm, I'm
3: getting to multi So you're okay, exactly fine. right. Okay, Mark. okay. I see. Other, okay. Than, other than the fact that when I buy a home in principle, I should get, it, I should get the same return as others. Yeah. I think right. in practice, we're just not going to get doesn't matter.
0: That. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah.
3: In multi family, you... uh-huh. if I put a dollar into an apartment REIT or if I put a dollar into um an apartment building, I have to earn the same rate of return as if I put a dollar into Microsoft, yeah. who owns an AI, you know, who has the AI stock, or I put a dollar into, um, you know, a consumer goods company or an airline. My dollar has to earn the same rate of return. If we think that AI is going to help some of those consumer goods and travel and financial services companies improve productivity, um, they're going to see... Potentially stronger returns on equity, which is what many equity analysts are saying. Um, And the AI and the chip and the other companies, you know, the software companies, et cetera, are also going to see benefits from that. Um, And my dollar in real estate has to earn the same rate of return as those other investments.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, it's almost it's almost like the way another way of interpreting what you're saying. I think I'll just say it and see if you agree is that you've got two different types of buyers uh, in 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 the in sellers in the in the single family housing market. It's mostly us as individuals, and there's all kinds of. We're not basing it on relative returns. We're not doing this careful calculation between rent, buy, and investing in stocks and everything else. We're not doing that because we got to live somewhere, and you know we like where we live. But in the multifamily side, uh, uh, not so much. A lot of institutional owners, and they're they're certainly driving the prices up and down and all around. And they are looking at the relative returns, and in this context of higher real rates going forward, prices have to be lower. Multifamily prices have to be lower.
3: Yes, And quite right. a bit lower. Quite a bit. So you talked is what about prices prices yeah. going, but twenty percent isn't nearly enough. Yeah. Oh,
0: interesting. On the multifamily side, it's not
3: enough? On the multifamily side, not even close. Oh, interesting. So real rates went from minus one to two and a half. Right. And that was the peak of the multifamily market. If you do the math and ask, I need to earn a real rate of return that's 3% more than it was at the peak. And you ask, how much do prices have to fall for that real return to be there, it isn't 18%. It's 30-plus percent. Okay. So if you look at – use a different index, and I hate to refer to indexes that are not the Moody's index, of no, course, no. but let me <laughs> just point <laughs> to Green Street. By
0: the Greens... way, I use other indices too, so uh... – I, sure I, I you know, know it's sort of Green a little bit be, like,
3: yeah. you know, there's, you know, what do you admit to in, you know, yeah. in the privacy of your home or, of course, yeah. in a podcast? Yeah. Um, you know, so if you look at the data that Green Street have, they suggest that multifamily prices are down closer to 25 to 30 than down 18. And Green Street has prices close to the level they were at the beginning of COVID. Hmm. If you use that, NAV estimate, if you use that yeah. cap rate mm-hmm. and look at apartment REITs mm-hmm. as of last Friday, a week ago, mm-hmm. we're recording this, um, Green Street's estimate of NAV, and I look at the share price of multifamily companies, and I delever the whole thing, and I ask, what is the premium to asset value that REITs are trading at? REITs are trading about fifteen percent below the asset value mark to market relative to Green Street's price estimate. Mm-hmm. So if you combine is, that, is,
0: that, is the Green Street also based on actual transactions or is that is that market based or is it Green Street based
3: or... they use market transactions, but Marketing. Green Street takes a heavier pen to those transactions than other people do. Okay. Okay. They are more careful about how they look at future NOI, so they're mm-hmm. really careful in calculating how they calculate cap rates. And they are, I would sort of say, they use a sharper pen than other people do mm-hmm. in calculating their cap rates, which is why they're more volatile up and down than other measures are. Um, but Green Street puts more resources into studying mm-hmm. um, commercial real estate than any other analyst by a factor of three. Yeah. Like they have three or four X the number of people relative to any other job that does this. So, you know, I I don't own, you know, they're privately owned. I don't own stock in the company. I'm not a paid spokesperson, but I, you, I tend to look at their data because they just put so many resources into Mm -hmm. what they do. And if you combine them relative to the 18% number you talked about, Mm -hmm. you could easily see a 20 to 25 green, the stock market, Mm-hmm. as of Friday, mm-hmm. is predicting another, call it 20 to 25% decline in multifamily prices relative mm-hmm. to where they are today. So and the would, math on that is not hard to go to.
0: So that would because, wipe out all the gains that are in our index going back. And, and, and thus, you're concerned about the banking system, the defaults, the delinquencies. Correct. The okay.
3: Correct. Got it. Got it. So just to give you the simple math mark, if you go from a five to a seven percent cap rate,
0: yeah. And, and nothing the way, else the, changes. Uh-huh. Well how far the,
3: the cap rate is just a multiple, right? You're right. gonna explain the cap rate?
0: Yeah, I was going the cap to, yeah. rate
3: is just the um the inverse of the price earnings ratio. Right. So if you think that interest rates, the required rate of return goes up two percent, going from a five percent cap rate to a seven percent cap rate is the equivalent of a 40% decrease in price. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is the difference in the PE ratio. And that's what you're seeing in the stock market from peak. The stock market's pricing more than that decline. And by the way, whether one, you know, how one thinks about it, um, the single family REITs are trading about a 16% decline in home prices. So the public markets are predicting apartment prices using Green Street's data have another 15% to go. And single-family home prices got to drop another 16%. We talked about why I don't think that's actually going to happen. But the difference, as you described completely accurately, between owners of single-family homes in the stock market Mm -hmm. and people who buy a home is owners of single-family homes in the stock market have to actually get a competitive rate of return on their capital for them to invest in the asset, Mm -hmm. whereas people who are buying homes have to own the home, and their return comes from living in it. So I don't think the stock market is predicting that housing prices are going to fall that much. Mm -hmm. What I think the stock market is saying that the price-to-rent ratio in single-family homes is not enough to justify where prices are today, and stock market investors need to earn, need to buy housing at a lower price to get a competitive rate of return. But in multifamily, stock market investors are no different than private equity buyers of real estate or institutions like Columbia in their endowment. They need to earn a competitive rate of return across the capital markets. And now we get to the now we get to your point, which is the distress in banks.
0: It's so just let me frame that for a second. Okay. So um the concern, the, the kind of the hand wringing here has been CRE prices are coming down, multifamily. We've been picking on multifamily, but you know, some of these other office the fundamentals are even worse. And prices feel like they can by ah. your calculations, I'm sure they're gonna be down 50, 60 percent, something like that. Retail, industrial, maybe less so, but still some price declines. So the concern is those price declines combined with the possibility interest rates remain very high, uh, owners of these uh, properties now face higher interest costs as their mortgages start to roll over and they get refinanced into a higher rate. So now you have less equity, no equity because of the price declines. On top of that, you have higher operating expenses and and then on top of that the fundamentals look iffy if remote work for big urban office towers and all that space coming all that multifamily space coming online in big urban areas so forth and so on. You add all that up that sound that feels like a lot of defaults and then when you get defaults that gets into your point about distressed sales and you get into this kind Correct. of self reinforcing what has been dubbed the doom loop the doom
3: loop. Is that correct? Dick? By my colleague, Stan Van at, Uh he's talking about the office market. Yeah. I'll stay away from office, yeah. both because he's the expert, but also because office is obvious. You don't have to have anything to do with real rates to be pessimistic about office. Yeah. But multifamily, the fundamentals are fine. If rent growth peaks at, you know, with the, you know, if rent growth sort of stops at zero and then goes to one, two, 3% a year in future years, because uh-huh. we, you know, supply growth comes back to normal levels and demand continues to grow. You know, we're not looking at declines in apartment rents of anything of the order of magnitude that we're describing. But I'll give you one quote that came from data looking at Trapp and Goldman in a, their, you know, their latest uh, housing report. Mm-hmm. If you look at CMBS originations,
0: commercial, mortgage new loans, securities, commercial CMBS, mortgage-backed securities, yeah.
3: CMBS-backed security. thank you. Yep. You keep making me explain acronyms, which is good. Um, new loans today are happening seven and a quarter plus percent. If you look at loans that are rolling over in 2024, the average interest rate is around 4.5% commercial loans. Commercial loans rolling over in 2025 are going to be 4.4%, and in 2026, they're going to be 4.3%. And they're going to roll over into a world where they're going to have to finance those new loans at 2 to 3% higher rates. And you could have exactly the same rents that you had before. You could have higher rents. But to pay a two or 3% higher interest rate off of a base of four and a half, if your interest rate goes from four and a half to seven, your interest costs are going up 40%. Unless Mm -hmm. your rents are 40% higher, and remember your costs, we start talking insurance costs and inflation, Mm -hmm. those have real effects on the cost of operating apartments and property taxes and wages and all that stuff are high. So your costs are not, flat, your costs are rising faster than inflation, particularly insurance, which is going to get worse, it is very tough for many units to pay those increases, even if you have a perfectly fine building. Hmm. Well, let me- and if you look at who holds those loans, by the way, the number of bank loans rolling over uh-huh. in 2024 is higher than 2023. In 2025, it is higher than 2024, and in 2027, it is even higher because all the loans that were made in 2020 and 2021, when rates were at incredibly low levels, they roll over in 2027. And that is a slow-moving crisis that unless we get real growth in rents, which I'm not seeing... Is going to be hard for a lot of those loans to roll over.
0: Let me. And let me. I, I hear you. Uh, and I I, I. I think we're going to end on the stats game because I think we need something uplifting after after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I know you're, you're running out of time. Uh, uh, we're all running. Uh, we 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 will we'll complete this part of the conversation and then t- do the stats game. And I'll let you get back to your to to your two very. Uh, significant jobs uh but the pushback on what you're saying is the and when i say pushback the more optimistic perspective on what you're saying is that everything you're everything you've said is is well known you know it's not we know all this uh is uh it's it's embedded in prices and the arithmetic is very clear uh, the regula- regulatory regu- regulators and the banking system and other investors in the marketplace see this coming. So it's not like it's going to take them by surprise. Not, not that that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a lot of financial pain and defaults, but it means that they can be managed. And moreover, if we look at the banking system, and I'm just abstracting a little bit from the non-bank part of the system, but the banking system and you look at the exposure of the banks particularly the big SIFI banks large banks it feels pretty small right i mean if you look at the total commercial real estate assets on on their balance sheet and that's mortgage that's loans that's that's uh, securities that's uh, you know i loans to reits you know just add it all up it's 5 10% of their asset base and it's actually lower than it was 10 15 20 years ago and then i'll say one more thing and then i'll stop and get your reaction They're they're capitalizing to these incredibly large loss rates. I mean, I think in the CCAR, that's the uh, annual stress test that the large banks take every year for capital planning. They are assuming overall commercial real estate values, peak to trough, are going to decline, I believe, Chris Chris Drees, correct me if I'm wrong, 40%. I believe that's 40% all in, you know, across all CRE. So- okay I, I said a, a lot there meaning that yeah I hear you the meteor is coming I know it's up there in the sky but I'm I'm getting I have ways to mitigate the damage it's going to do to Earth uh does that resonate at all
3: um yes and no okay this is not a this is not a big bank problem this is it's not a, a gcp okay. problem
0: a
2: G-S-
3: and the reason is actually exactly what you just said which is the bank's stra have heavily penalize real estate lending heavily yeah they run you know h- incredibly harsh scenarios and by the way they have to run rate increases on top of the scenarios you just described mm-hmm. so if you hold fixed rate loans of 5 to 7 to 30 years the stress test just crushed those loans mm-hmm. and so large banks have gotten out for the most part of real estate lending. So where are those loans sitting? They're not sitting with the SIFIs. They're sitting with small and regional banks, mm-hmm. and they're sitting with life insurance companies, and they're mm-hmm. sitting in the hedge fund and the you know investment base space. That's where the loans are sitting. They're not sitting with the large banks. So I'm not predicting in any way that these are going to be problems. Many of those institutions are not mark-to-market. They're either privately held. A lot of that stuff is in privately held institutions or small mid-sized banks. And some of, you know, regional bank index is not a lot above where it was in March. Despite the improvements in the economy, mm-hmm. the regional bank index for regional banks is pricing in continued concerns. And every mm-hmm. time rates go up a little bit, you see the mm-hmm. regional bank index just get crushed. Mm-hmm. When it went up to 5% briefly, the regional bank index was bouncing around the March lows. And so the market does see this and does see where it's sitting. And it's not all regional banks. Some regional Mm -hmm. banks don't have this exposure. Some of them have a lot of it. Um, And it's a real problem for those institutions. But it's going to sit in lots of other buckets in the economy, not in those places. But if you look at new lending, the problem is going to be when you get a credit crunch, a credit crunch is historical lenders take losses, and as a result of the losses, don't want to make new loans. And so, what I worry, about, look, capital markets are efficient as ever. If you give somebody the opportunity to make a buck, somebody's going to jump in and want to make a buck. This is not like you know the late '80s when there were they were given away real estate by the federal government, and you know people could make fortunes. But I still say that when I look at the people who make commercial real estate loans new loans are hard to get everywhere and standards are very tight. And I think we're just going to have a bunch of challenges ahead Mm -hmm. in the commercial real estate side. Mm -hmm. If real rates come down and if spreads on mortgages come down and if the tenure comes down, that stuff gets better. Mm -hmm. But I will say that, you know, Federal Reserve officials... May not give themselves a lot of credibility when they say there're absolutely no problems
0: mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I don't
3: think it's really true. Mm-hmm. The it it is. And the really puzzling thing to me is why they keep pointing to real estate and pushing to tighten standards here and there. You know, you're not going to be able to roll over these loans without extending them for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to get hard to do it across the board. And I think Mm -hmm. we're in for a period that could just be a few years of prices continuing to fall and things are kind of rough, and that's the good scenario. And the bad scenario, we have some element of distress. But when you're talking about the markets, I think apartment REITs and the REIT market in general is pricing in a moderate level of distress. In commercial real estate, in other words, I think their prices mm-hmm. are overshooting fundamentals mm-hmm. by a little bit. I don't think apartment prices should mm-hmm. fall quite as much as I was describing earlier, mm-hmm. and so I think the REIT market at the moment is pricing
0: in some, some distress. Yeah,
3: that is, you know, that is in addition to the other stuff we're seeing, and I think the banking sector. There's some individual bank stocks that are pricing in mm-hmm. some level of that. But there are a lot of other holders of these assets that we could go look at. And the great thing about global markets is they're held globally, not just in the U.S. So that spreads the pain over a lot larger base. Mm-hmm. I do think it may not be a great time for a while for, mm-hmm. you know, folks on the commercial real estate side. And I do think there's likely to be some elements of distress that are not just in um, in office that are really kind of across the the board.
0: Well, OK, under that. Uh, uh with that sobering <laughs> that's
3: not, uh, that's assessment that's, that's, i not i wasn't so yeah. bad right housing no, no, prices no, so don't bad. collapse no. they kind of no, no, stay no, no. where right. they You're are right. commercial real yeah. estate yeah. i could be much worse the
0: meteor is coming guys it's gonna hit but oh, it's gonna be I was okay gonna under most scenarios <laughs> you know maybe maybe one or two scenarios it could be bad but okay all right i, I hear you uh and, and it, it makes a lot of sense I, they're definitely. Uh, lot of risk there but let's end the conversation playing the game uh, just uh uh liven it up a little bit uh um uh lighten it up i should say a little bit and marissa's uh tradition has it that marissa goes first so i don't know how this tradition came to be but it is so it's a marissa, good one. yeah and, and oh i should remind everyone the game uh, we each put forward a statistic the rest of the group tries to figure that out through cues and deductive reasoning and and um and clues. And the, the best the statistic is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately. One that's not so hard that we never get it. And ap- if it's apropos to the to the issue at hand, all, all the better, uh, but not necessary. Marissa, fire away.
1: Okay. So my statistic was taken during the course of this conversation. Oh. So I was scrambling a little bit to come up with something. something I could else.
0: see it on your face. I could see <laughs> you scrambling over there. You see my,
1: the panic? Um, yeah, the
0: panic set in.
1: Okay. So I'm going to do something a, a little bit different. I'm not going to give you a statistic. I'm going to make you guess some geographies. Okay. So we got a lot of house price data. This is on the single family side, moving back Uh to the single family side. So we got a lot of house price data this week. Our data? We got our data. We got the Case-Shiller data. We got FHA data, right? Mm -hmm. So in the Case-Shiller and the Moody's Analytics house price indexes, if you look at the the biggest metro areas in the country, say the top 25 metro areas in the country there are three metro areas where house prices and only three where house prices are down over the year
0: in the fhfa in, series
1: in in the well now i'm I'm looking at the the k shiller right now but oh, this Kay is also, yeah but this is also true of our moody's analytics house price index too
0: Okay. Uh, you're talking about the big metro areas, then. Uh, yes. What's, the, the, what's top, the universe of metro areas?
2: You're the top
1: 25, the oh, biggest 25. 25 metro areas in the country. Okay. okay? Well, where San are they by population. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What, Chris?
2: San Francisco.
1: Hold on. Hold, hold on.
2: Oh. What?
1: <laughs> so. Oh. And and these are metropolitan areas, okay. not metropolitan divisions. Okay. 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 So there are three warehouse prices are down over the year. Can you guess which three they are?
0: Not San Francisco? That would be one, I would say. No? Austin? Is Austin in the list though? No. Top 25? No. no oh, top tw- Okay, yeah. Yeah. All right. top 25.
1: So San Francisco, I'll give you partial credit for. San it's Jose? Actually, it's actually up in the case Schiller, no. but it was down in the Moody's analytics. So oh. that was okay. the one where right. there was some disconnect.
0: Oh, you're saying across all three of these measure house price measures? No, no, that's not what you're
1: saying.
2: They're down year I'm over saying, year in I'm both saying, the M A uh, Moody's and the K Shiller.
1: Moody's and Case Shiller. Uh-huh. Okay, there are three. Okay, that are down in both of those. San Francisco was down in one, but not the other.
0: I got it. I got it. So it's it. Okay. I
1: give them partial credit for that.
0: Uh. Is Phoenix in the uh yeah Phoenix is one of
1: them. Uh, Vegas is that that is one of them.
0: So we have one more to go? Yep. Is it uh uh Dallas? Dallas, yeah. I was gonna say Dallas.
1: No, but Dallas is, is on the border, oh, barely positive growth over the year.
0: Um
2: LA?
1: Nope. Denver. Nope. Not oh,
0: Denver, not Denver. Uh, it's not in the north. It shouldn't be in the northeast.
1: Uh, you're in too. the. It's in the same region of the country where you're guessing.
0: Yeah, Boise. West. It can't be Boise. That's too small. No. can't be Salt too Lake. Small. That's too small. What's the other big metro area? Down uh, Seattle.
2: Seattle. Seattle. No. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not Denver. We you're, should get this. Yeah, you should get it. Uh, what are we missing in that? Um, Portland. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Sorry,
1: Portland. Yes. Portland. Oh, That's Portland. Okay. One. Portland. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Portland. Yeah. <laughs> That's, so a, good one, That's a good one though. Biggest Phoenix in Portland is where house prices have fallen over the year in yeah. uh, among big metro areas. And those are the only places where we're measuring declining house prices. I
0: just want to point out that my home in uh, Vero Beach, Florida, way up according to our index. Right. Billy? God. Billy's <laughs> booming. We got like 9% year over year growth. I, what's that all yeah. about? I don't Philly's know. Billy's
1: looking good. That's beautiful. right. I, I,
3: by the way, Florida, I, if you ask me where I'm most nervous about, Mark, you probably didn't yeah. want to hear me volunteer Florida, yeah. but I'll volunteer Climate, Florida.
0: Insurance costs, that kind of thing. Climate
3: insurance. Yeah. Um, when we talk about things that force people to realize problems, they're negative yeah. things. And high growth of insurance, if god forbid we have a you know the next storm etc yeah but if you go through the area you know south of fort myers between fort myers and naples and the wreckage there and yeah. you then say i'm an insurance company you're gonna be pretty nervous so
0: yeah i hear you i hear you i love that where huh? my mom lives all right chris you're yeah. up next chris uh mary you're up next
3: all right 6. you're 5. playing the game right what is it yeah six point five years
0: six years five years uh yes That's not the average duration of a mortgage, is it? No. It is not. (laughs) Because it's longer than that now, right? It's like and it's
3: gonna extend way longer further. You're right. Six point five years. Uh
0: six point five years. The
1: is this something to do with multifamily?
3: No, it is not a real estate statistic. It's not. Oh Oh, it's not. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. My that's my (laughs) mind. You'll see, but you'll see what you'll see my linkage in a second to real estate. Um, but it has to do with where you started, Mark, on the economy.
0: Where did I start? Oh, boy. Uh, the, uh,
3: that... the, when you and I started, which was a labor market has been really strong and we're not going into a recession. Um, right. you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, keep it going.
0: Six and a half years. Oh, bummer. Uh, yeah. a recession,
3: Recession is a key part of this statistic.
0: Was that we get a recession every six and a half years?
3: Correct. Oh in the post war yeah. period. All right. um, okay. Yeah. That's and the linkage to real estate is all of what we've been talking about assumes a soft landing. Yeah. And if we don't get that, yeah, then all the bets are off in terms of what we were all of our discussion because yeah. things could look very different if we have a recession and negative growth in terms of how to think about both housing and real estate That's and banking, cool. et cetera. Yeah. We should that have was my that. statistic.
0: That's a good statistic. We should have gotten that right away. Because it's yeah. consistent with that 15% unconditional probability everyone uses. Yeah. Uh Chris Dreadies, you're up. Uh seventy one point four. Is it a statistic that came out this week? It did. Government statistic? No. Not a government statistic. Uh, is it from a Conference Board survey of consumer confidence? No. Nope. Uh, it is a, a trade a, group. It is from a trade group. Uh, housing related real yes. estate. Re- it's housing yes. related. Oh,
1: is it NAHB?
0: Nope.
3: Is it
2: percentage of
3: of purchases by new home builder, by new home buyers?
2: Nope. It's an index.
3: An index. A
0: trade
2: group. Nope
0: uh 71.4 <laughs> yeah um it's not a sentiment index no
1: it's a trade group it, related to housing it's
0: related to housing and it came out this past and it's not
1: week. the nahb
0: no nope. uh should we get this Chris I thought you would get this mark ah now he's trying to embarrass me yeah. Uh,
3: that's only because I'm the housing guy. So that's only because I'm the new guy on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> he didn't want to embarrass uh, me. The uh,
2: National Association of Realtors. Okay. Oh, okay.
0: Did they come out with anything this week? What did yeah. they come out with? Uh, Index of
3: home sales.
0: These are pending home sales. Oh, pending, pending home, sales. home sales. Yeah. All right. And you know what? For some reason, I thought that was home builders, the NHB. That's yeah. how I got fooled. That's yeah. an art.
2: It's an art. National Association of. No, no, wait. And they are, yeah. Depending, oh, you're tourists. right. That's sure. at a near all time low. Yeah, right. That's right. at An
3: all time near. That is an all time low.
2: At an all time low. Yep. That's that's oh, going wow. back to uh, 2001. That's when they started. So
3: wow, lower
2: right than insane. it was in the Great Recession. Lower than the early days of COVID, when we couldn't actually transact a lot of houses. So oh, just to, there's uh, nothing
3: this says that says it can't get lower.
2: That's true.
0: That's true. <laughs> There's that meteor.
2: 71 there.
3: has <laughs> a lot of numbers. I that, that and zero. Remember the old spinal tap where, but it goes to 11. It's not just 10, it actually goes to 11. <laughs> That's right. That's I'll give 71, you 71. It can go lower.
2: This figure um, is from October, though. So I'll give you a little. If you want more of an optimistic view, this was
3: October, very
2: high mortgage Uh, rates, and mortgage rates have come down. So we could
0: see a little bit of pickup. uh,
3: I predict going lower.
0: Okay. Uh, All right. I got one. Um, What's yours? Two numbers. uh, And we did talk about this earlier, uh, 3% and minus 0.2%. 3%
1: Three percent is the PCE year
0: over year. No, it, it's year over year percent change in something, but not the PCE, not the consumer expenditure deflator. But that
2: is it, it is true. the PCE. Honestly. It is. It's actually
0: oh, correct. correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another three percent. Okay, <laughs> oh, no, that's funny. Oh, that's true. It was the uh, yeah. Yeah, overall inflation three percent. You're right, exactly. Yeah, for year, yeah. That, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, that no, this is another three percent. It's
2: housing related.
0: related. No, it, it goes no. to not <clears throat> housing related, but but a oh. statistic that came out this week, a government statistic.
2: Okay. Um,
0: it. it um, uh, oh, is it disposable income? No, uh, in that ballpark though. Um, Spending income came from the. It came from the BEA. That's GDP. A Is it a GDP, GDP? GDP. That's your over right. your real GDP growth on the nose. Real. Okay. real. Yeah. Three. That's I mean, right. That's, oh, okay. That's pretty impressive. What's the minus minus point two? Chris Dorides, you should know this. You brought this up uh, earlier.
2: I brought this up earlier.
0: You brought up the statistic earlier. Yeah. In the context of GDP.
1: Oh, GDI. GDI, gross
0: domestic income. Yeah. So that gap is pretty large. The so-called statistical discrepancy, which is the difference between gross domestic Mm -hmm. income and gross domestic product, is 2.5% of GDP. It's been higher only one other quarter in history since World War II. Wow. I mean, that something- Which one's right? I don't know. I mean- (laughs) Something's going to get revised. But I I think, though, the rule of thumb, the advice you get is, as you said average. earlier, average the two. So three plus minus 0.2 divide by two. It's about one and a half-ish. That actually feels like the economy to me, doesn't it? I mean, if potential growth in the economy is two and we've been growing one and a half, that explains the kind of the modest easing up in the labor market that we've been observing over the past year. So it feels like that might be actual reality here, but we'll, we'll see with the revisions. Anyway, <clears throat> okay, that was great. Uh, hey, Chris, uh, you, you took a, a lot of time with us under significant duress, so I really appreciate it. And it, we didn't cover a lot of ground. I I had so many other things I want to talk to you about, uh, and maybe we can get you back on uh, to talk about them. Uh, and uh, maybe by that point in time, you'll be even cheerier than you are now <laughs>
3: <laughs> good well I, I appreciate it it's been a lot of fun the great uh great group to uh great great group to talk to and i really enjoy the podcast well so, thanks so it's an much honor to be on
0: thank you and i, I just you. before we go i want to call out one of our listeners milan Tommen. milan is a avid uh, inside economics uh listener uh spotify it produces these statistics that show you, uh, you know, what is your number one podcast, number two, number three, how much you're listening. And Milan is, you know, I think, what was it Chris or Marissa in terms of uh, almost like 4,000 hours of listening on the inside wow. economics podcast, real fan. So, uh, and he, I think he's in the financial uh, uh, f- uh, in the financial services industry in London. So uh, thank you, Milan. I really appreciate uh, your, your dedication to our, to our podcast and hopefully you um, it sounds like you found it of some value. So, so, so thank you for that. And with that, dear listener, I think we're going to call it a podcast. Take care now.